Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back. Today, we are going to talk about basketball. That's that's what we're going to do. Cody is here. Think about it, too. Cody, bit. how you doing? I'm doing well. If you can, if you can look, look on your camera. You see, you see that on my eye. Oh see my that? goodness! What happened? Cody yeah. has a scratch. If this is not available via video for you, some kind of scratch on his eyelid. It looks like. Did you run into a cat? And here's the thing: I watched so much basketball this last week that my eyes started bleeding. Now, that, that's a joke. We, I mean, I was confused listening to you and Kyle last episode when you're like, people would be confused to find out we actually watch basketball. I was confused by that. I'm like, we actually watch it. I just look at per and field goal percentage and call it a day. Oh, that's the old way to do it. I what I like to do is I like to look at that dripping matrix code in ones and zeros. You just got to get a stream of data coming into your what are we talking about today the, the fact that there's no defense in the nba is that what we're talking about yeah i think that's the only place to start that's what people have been waiting for is for us to now that march madness is here the real basketball the real good basketball in this nation we need to talk about the nba not having defense i mean we talked about this last week of course this the scoring boom things that are changing with the officiating both in the long term and the short term foul rates stuff like that but then, of course, this is one thing. I hear this all the time, this this sort of idea that there's no defense in today's NBA. Yeah, I, I, I bring up the March Madness thing because this is a conversation I start having a lot more, like between students, between coworkers and things like that. People are all like, oh, have you been watching these games? And I'm like, no, there was a Pistons Magic game the other day. Like, I couldn't watch March Madness. <laughs> and they're like, oh, the NBA is so t-. Like, they don't even try. They don't even try. They haven't played defense in years. And I'm like, what? You... I, what is your response when you hear that sort of thing? Like, how, how do you engage with this conversation in a non-condescending way? I, I've, you mean if I were directly talking to someone in yeah. that situation? Yeah. I would, I would um, slowly walk them through the strategic arms race of the last 25 years, going back to the rule changes about freedom of movement and uh, the effect of spacing, and, and the fact that really, I think, NBA defenses today are, in many ways, fantastic. They are just hamstrung by both an improvement in strategy and a radical change in officiating that's very lopsided. I, I, I think if you went back, here's, here's a question that I was thinking about recently. If you went back in time, like a true time machine thing, you took, you took a team from today with the knowledge they have, the additional knowledge that they've built over the last decade or two, and you brought them back in time, what would uh, an offensive rating, what would an average kind of like offensive rating be against today's defense with everything that they've learned and, and with everything that they can throw at you? Uh, I, I think it would be much lower. Like I think the average defense today would be an elite defense like 15 years ago, something like that. Yeah, I, that was exactly what I was going to say, and that's what, I, that's what I like talking with you about this kind of stuff, is you have this historical scope, too. But if you go back to the 80s, you go back to the 70s, like, the level of effort on the average NBA play from, like, role players on defense, it does not stack up to nowadays. Like, the running through different screens and having to cover the paint and being spread out and closing out and having to cover and pre-switching and all this kind of stuff, like, I feel like I just didn't see it to the level that I'm seeing it now. Like, NBA defenses are working hard. And if they weren't working hard, the offensive re- rating would be like 125 this yeah. season. 
Yeah, and we're we're back to more movement in the game in the last few seasons. And the space, of course, means you have to cover larger distances, big men being stretched to the perimeter. Um, you know, now we see switching schemes and all this kind of stuff. And so the average February game in like the 90s or something when I was growing up watching watching nightly and League Pass became a thing and stuff like that. You would watch these games in the heart of the season, in the heart of the winter in the Northeast, and there just wasn't that much movement or effort. Those guys were pacing themselves to a certain degree for the postseason, and you had stars back then playing. This is another one that gets me. This is a pet peeve. Wilt Chamberlain played over 48 minutes a game. Yeah, he didn't have to run out and deal with 16 ball screens 30 feet away from the hoop or... Steph Curry and Buddy Heald running around trying to pull up from wherever they could for 21 consecutive seconds. A lot of guys could just go paint to paint. You had a lot more isolation in these past eras, a lot more post offense. So even even the packed paint, the perimeter players kind of stayed outside. Maybe one of them cut through to change sides. And then you'd have like the post guys, they they would be like a little wrestling match. Once somebody would set a cross screen for another person, a guard would go through. John Stockton would elbow someone in the leg. Finally, Carl Malone pops out. He gets his post up. Then he can catch it. He can pound it in one place for a few seconds and then go into a fadeaway. Like the amount of effort and movement and running on that play compared to the first four seconds of a Memphis Grizzlies possession it's like, or the the Golden State Warriors, what they're trying to do every few seconds on offense, it's night and day. So I think that effort, I think that movement, um, the only reason why I believe people are saying there's no defense is because of the psychological effect of looking at the scoreboard where we have more pace and we have more efficiency, but that efficiency is things like the three-point shot being used, um, huge, huge uptick in foul rates. Uh, allowing offensive players to take more steps, carry the ball more. It's just an evolution of these things. It's like a frog in, in boiling water. So I, I think that's I think that's what I would say. Was that not condescending? No, I think that's actually a really good answer. And I do okay. think the looking at the scoreboard, I think it's even beyond that. Like if you get a lot of your uh, NBA content from watching SportsCenter, because maybe you're a general NBA fa- or general like sports fan. You just turn on SportsCenter and you see like the highlights. You see some people splash some threes and maybe a drive and maybe there's a missed rotation. So there's an open layup. You see the scoreboard, but you also see these highlight offensive plays because those yep. are the things that are being shown. And yep. all of a sudden you just jumped the idea of like, oh, they're just they're they're not trying as hard on defense. And I remember this a lot with like LeBron in like the early 2010s when people are like, oh, Jordan never took a night off. I <laughs> I watched. <laughs> I watched a game from like 88 when he was guarding like Randy Whitman when he was playing for the Hawks and there was like four straight him. possessions. Yep. He just yep. gets torched on a ball screen. I'm like, no, it, this Jordan never took a playoff. No NBA player ever has not taken a playoff. Like that's Actually, just a fallacy. Yeah, I just watched that game last year. I know exactly what you're talking about. I think it's in his Greatest Peaks video. Um, he kind of like looks to just leak over to the ball side to get a steal and then by the third time, he's like not even chasing Randy Whitman off the screen. It's like Randy Whitman's a good shooter. And the whole thing they're trying to do is set a down screen for him so he can come up and get a wide open jumper at 17 feet. And by the third time, you would think you would go after it. And then it happens a fourth time. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a different game um, than, than it was back then. And I think another thing about the perception of highlights that you were just pointing out. It's another psychological effect. These highlights are cut 
upstream in the play. You don't see what happened earlier in the play. So if you watch a lot of highlights, you might think, wow, there's no defense. Look at how that guy got a wide open dunk down the lane. He got a wide open dunk down the lane because they're like six passes in and they're like seven rotations in. And at the very end, there was, or somewhere there was a breakdown or whatever. And after these long chain of events, sometimes you just can't make that help, 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 help the helper. You know, you can't make that last rotation. And so you get these incredible modern athletic, and there's more of these guys on the court. There aren't trees, big men, these sluggish guys. So you have these really athletic wings coming in and attacking closeouts, and you get that final breakdown, and they have more space to cover. So they're going and helping all the way out to the corner or on a closeout and trying to recover. You wouldn't see this kind of play over and over again on highlights in the 80s or 90s. And yet, in the 80s or 90s, you would have defensive breakdowns. They would just look a little different. A body would still be nearby, if you will, and there would still be like Dikembe Mutombo lurking in the paint. So you couldn't quite have as many wide-open layups at the hoop. All the bigs now can get stretched out to the perimeter, and when you do that, you create space for these wide-open layups, and I think it can create the perception, if you're only viewing the game through that lens, of like, what's going on? This is so easy, there's no defense. Which is why I think like the the misnomer of small ball kind of misses the point where I like skill ball a lot more because it's just like these bigger players aren't necessarily getting smaller. Like, you know, we're seeing a lot more big guys out there like Embiid, Jokic, Giannis. These guys are doing just fine on defense and excelling at defense. But the thing is, is they can cover so much more ground so much quicker. Like we see immense defensive impacts from singular big men from 90s, 80s, 70s. And you just, you simply wouldn't see that kind of impact because like Olajuwon still would be a top tier defender nowadays. But like he would all of a sudden have to be guarding someone out on the perimeter and have to cover back to the paint and things like that. So I think, I think all of those elements elements kind of combined to make it seem like defenses are just not trying or, or worse nowadays. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Well, Tracy McGrady said something, right? He was the one who said something recently about Giannis. Yep. What did he say about him? So there, there were two players, two, two retired players that made comments about Giannis. Tracy McGrady said that it would have been tough for him to be who he is today back then. Basically, it would have been like, tough for him to be who he is today back then. Okay. Basically, like, you can't, like, do the, the spread pick and roll thing. He, his game is predicated on getting downhill. And back in Tracy McGrady's day, you know, so <laughs> long ago in 2007, like, it, it just would have been impossible for him to use that space. And then Charles Oakley, in sort of a follow-up interview a little bit after that, uh, here's his full quote. He said, he wouldn't have been a force back in the day. He would have struggled. They would make him shoot jump shots. He wouldn't be doing a Euro step to the basket. Somebody going to knock his head off. He'd come off the bench back in the day. So Oakley goes a step further and say that, says that Giannis would come off the bench in the 80s and 90s. What is your immediate reaction to that? Well, I think McGrady's one is interesting because it would have been tougher or even extremely hard for him to play exactly the same way he plays today because those five-out sets and that space would not really be a thing. And then you have to think about, 
I think the appropriate way to do it is, or the, the reasonable way to do it is just to think about how he would develop and what kind of skills he would try to develop. Because when you're coming up 17, 18, 19, second, third year in the league, you're not going to be able to have um, sort of the learning repetitions to realize like, oh, I should get this incredible Euro step. I've got these really long limbs and legs and I, I can get downhill. I'm really big, but I can move fast into big people and it's really hard for them to handle. And I'm too strong and long for small people. It would be different because you would not have that five out runway. I think Giannis with a runway is one of the scariest things in NBA history. And I think it's a big key to his effectiveness as an offensive player. I think it's also why he's so good as a role man, being able to get downhill and just take that space and eat it up. So right on that cue, I think he would have been a dangerous role man. Um, There still would have been lob threats in the 90s and 2000s. I think he would have had more post opportunities. I think he probably would have started more stuff. You see it now where he starts stuff around the the mid-range, the elbow. I feel like, Cody, what do you think? I feel like they were doing that more a couple years ago. And now they've become a little bit more selective about, like, you're going to start your move from 17 feet. I feel like he either gets transition, runway, uh, a good touchdown low within the flow of the offense, where now he's added that little fadeaway, which I love, um, or as a roll man, right? Whereas a couple years ago, I think more of his stuff was starting sort of around the, the middle of the foul line. Is that fair? I think you might be right. I think there was a weird pivot to him initiating a lot more outside of the perimeter maybe a year ago, year and a half ago or so. But I do think I've been seeing a little bit more sprinkled in with him starting at the top of the key more. But you're right. He's been acting primarily as a role man, primarily as a transition man, more than I feel like I'm accustomed to seeing this season. Yeah. So I I think, like, on McGrady's perspective... um, if he weren't being inflammatory, I mean, you know, maybe if he's trying to be fair, he is the type of player that I think it would be different, just like how recently we talked about it would be different for Shaq. Shaq would probably have to play a, a different way um, going forward in time. So I think that part is interesting, especially just realizing how players succeed within their context, like what makes something a strength or weakness that generates impact one way or the other within their era, within their context. So that's really interesting. But I think with great players, and and Giannis is a world-class freakish athlete, and he's someone who works really hard, and um, I think despite some of the criticisms last season, has continued to add a little or uptick his game in a fairly normal way for like really, really high level players. No, I don't think he's ever going to be a great shooter. Um, Yes, it took him a little bit too long, in my opinion, to add some of the short mid range, just that single right shoulder fade away. I would have had him working on that shot over threes. I've said this for years, but ball handling, um, understanding how to use his body in space, passing vision, accepting double teams, um, adding you know he's got a little hook now which i think is a little bit more developed this is this is normal for guys of this level in their mid-20s and i think you would have seen i don't know if he could be the same impact player on offense but i mean i think he would have been a, a boatload 15 or 20 years ago so charles oakley just it's a little bit it's a little crazy with the with the back in my day like like you're talking about a guy who in some ways is like a like a bigger, longer version of Dominique Wilkins in terms of the stuff he can do around the basket. I think there would have been more offensive rebounding oomph back in Charles Oakley's day. So I I think either way, you're talking about a high-level player. It's a little silly sometimes when 
these guys say, oh, this 6'11 guy who can do things no one else can do would come off the bench? What? And that doesn't even mention the defense. I mean, like, he, he would – I think you mentioned this recently. He'd probably even be more impactful as a defender 15 or 25 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I was going to say is maybe maybe you've took a little bit off the offensive end. Right. Like, defensively, like, we're talking about now a guy that doesn't have to go out on the perimeter and cover all this space. We're just stationing, like, literally one of the best rim protectors in the league who's also just a tremendous off-ball roamer, like, closer to the basket, not having to do more duties. But then also, just, like, on offense, people complain nowadays about him being too physical. Right? Like teams, like I feel like there was a Hawks game semi recently where like everyone was freaking out, like, oh, he's like throwing his elbow into Clint Capella and it's he's just like driving to the basket, right? He he took it straight to Rudy Gobert a couple of times recently against uh against the Jazz. Like this is a guy that does not shy away from content. Content. That was weird. He, I don't know if he shies away from content. I don't he know likes he content. Gets... No, his content is very, very good. Yeah, Giannis is the great content. He's, he does not shy away co- from content or contact, right? And so if he'd grown up in a different context, we have lots of those kinds of words right now. Um, if he had been in a different context, right, he would have been working on that jump hook more, which looks, like you said, pretty effective. He would have had a nice little 10-foot fadeaway, which he seems to have right now. Like, th- this guy would have figured it out and been... I don't know, maybe not as effective offensively, but definitely more effective defensively, and we still end up with an all-time player no matter what. Yeah, yeah, I, I think something like that. Now, you can debate whether there's an era that makes an all-time player a top 25 player in history or a top 75 player in history, but I think that's kind of moot when we get to a point like, back, back in my day, this guy would really struggle or really come off the bench. It's like, come on. Um, anyway, you know who's not struggling? Like, Giannis right now. He's he's been fantastic again as of late, and the stuff. I mean, we were just talking about using him as a role man and the way Milwaukee uses him. Their their offense, especially with the big three, has really been humming. Um, do you want to? I mean, you're the resident. I don't want to. I don't want to step on your resident Bucks fandom here. Do you? How are you feeling about this offense? Let's start with that. I'm really excited about it, and you might need to taper me down because I have a couple of takes. <laughs> I have a couple of takes coming up here. Maybe they'll be a little too ridiculous, but I well, feel it's not f- like I get in trouble when you when you have ridiculous takes. So just just fire away. See, that's what's great is any voice you hear. That's Ben's. That's Ben's voice. So at him, right? I don't even exist. Go straight to Ben with any takes. Uh, but yeah, over the last 15 games, I'm not counting the stinker against the Timberwolves yesterday. I didn't even watch the game because it's 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 blacked out, and I'm a good upstanding citizen. That doesn't <laughs> bypass blacking out in any way. That's, that's not even sarcasm. I don't the, the, the Timberwolves. We're going to have to do something with the Timberwolves because I'm not. I'm not mentally prepared for this. I just saw like an hour ago. Their offensive rating since January 1st is over 120. Best in the NBA. I don't know. Can anybody beat Minnesota? All right, back. Keep continue, Cody. I'm sorry. You were saying you get blacked out. You can't watch your local team. Yeah. So so Giannis is out yesterday against the Timberwolves. But the previous 15 games, they had the best offense in the NBA. Their offensive rating was the best. I think it was just a shade under under 120 at that point. And I was going Tim, in Timberwolf le- level offense. Yeah, exa- the Bucks are basically as good as the Timberwolves in offense. That's all you need to know. There's like the Timberwolves, the Grizzlies and the Bucks. So that's when you know it's like apex level offense. Um the thing that really stands out to me is just like they have so much going on like the big 3 and I think mm. combined with the underrated sets that coach Budenholzer sets up and just like being able to get his guys moving and buying into the system I I don't know. Am I going too far to start off by saying that this might be 
the most diverse offense in the league in terms of like they can throw pretty much any kind of offense at you and they're going to do it at least above average no matter what? Well, that's an interesting philosoph- – I mean, not the first time you've raised an interesting philosophical question. Would you rather have a handful of brown belts or a black belt or two? Because I don't think the Bucks can give you any form of offense that is like, this is one of the best two or three forms of this offense. But I think they can give you good offense in a, in a variety of different ways. Um, and I'm thinking the way they use Giannis as a role man, five out – Chris Middleton kind of sets. Um, what else, Cody, do they do they like to run as sort of pet action and offense? Well, I think the main thing that really stands out to me, and I, I, I want to push back on that one thing. I think one thing that they do at a top-tier level is transition. Because oh, Giannis, yeah, that's true. Yep. Yeah, Giannis is probably the best transition player in the league right now. Yep, I'm sorry. I was only thinking of half court. That's that's a great point. Continue. Giannis and Giannis in transition is scary. Yeah, he's absolutely ridiculous. The amount of possessions he gets is like overshadowing pretty much everyone, and he's a foul drawing machine there. But I think the other thing is is you know they they have multiple of these wrinkles. I'm thinking of this one set where like it's an out of bounds play, and Chris Middleton gets it, and the first option is he runs off this double stagger baseline, and it's like oh we have Chris Middleton coming off a double stagger, him getting a catch and shoot in that situation. That right there is great offense, but that's covered. Pretty well. You know what the backup plan was? A pick and roll with Drew Holiday and Giannis Antetokounmpo. So they cover that pretty well, ends up stifling that a little bit. Giannis ends up, drives into the post, kicks it out, and the possession ends with Drew Holiday posting up. Uh, I, th- I think there's maybe one defender weak side there, so he has a lot of space to operate in the post, and he easily rises up and hit a post fadeaway. Okay, so even if you stifle pretty much any action that they have, Chris Middleton, top tier bad shot maker, Drew Holiday, underrated post-up mid-range guy. Mm, and I mean, mm-hmm. this guy is just on fire from from mid-range this season. I think the, the post-up game of his isn't a mirage at all. I think maybe the, the long mid-range stuff is a little bit is a little bit of an illusion, but that post game is, is incredible. So even when it gets bogged down, you have these couple of options that's like, well, didn't work out. Chris, Drew, go do something. And having that final option, I think, makes them particularly dangerous at this point. I think they've struggled a little in the past to blend all those things together on one possession, like you just diagrammed, right? And I th- and we should talk more about Drew in a second because he's been amazing. But I think the more you can find sort of organic flowing offensive sets like that that can take advantage of um, Giannis attacking space or Giannis getting downhill as a roll man, the spacing and shooting around them with ball handlers who can kick out and make decision – decisions Chris Middleton um, in that like pinch post mid post game going to his office or using him as one of the guys who can come off I like all that little middle handoff action they get into sometimes where you can have Drew or Chris playing kind of two-man action with Giannis and you can hit him on the roll or you have to respect those guys on the drive and the mid-range pull-up or you have to respect those guys from three-point shooting because they're both really good three-point shooters Drew Holiday specifically has improved his three-point shooting over the years. He's now actually, I think he's like 41% on wide-open threes. He's 38% on pull-up threes. Both of those are over the last three seasons. So I like anything this this year that can kind of connect the strengths of those three players in a consecutive set organically and and leverage the sort of big three offensive options with the role players all at the same time versus like, 
oh, on this possession, every everyone kind of clear out. We're going to isolate Middleton because that's what we need to do. 100. This is, this is something that I've been calling for for a couple of years because I think the Bucks' offense is worst when they start being like, all right, Giannis, we actually want you to be LeBron light. Like, we're going to space out five-out right, yeah. offense. Giannis, you're going to make something out of it. Maybe we'll get some drive and kick action because I think that's what Budenholzer really likes. That's what he was running with the Hawks a lot is like, get into the paint, drive, kick, drive, kick, drive, kick, something is open. And I actually, that's that's the offense that makes me the the most frustrated when when the Bucks do this because I think Giannis still has a, a poor propensity to take his little pull-up jumpers. I would love for him to cut that fat out of his game. But the best is when he kind of takes on more of a, more of like a bam roll versus more of a of a LeBron roll. Like him, top of the key, setting a bunch of screens, doing a bunch of DHOs, letting Chris and Drew run around. Pretty much everyone else that's on the court with him, Bobby Portis included, even Brooke Lopez now that he's back, everyone else is going to be able to space out and shoot threes. So the paint is just going to be wide open. All these guys are athletic enough to get to the paint. And again, like Middleton, Holiday, these aren't necessarily guys that you can wall off on drives because they're just fine, like stopping short 10 feet and like, well... There's not really a lane going all the way, so I'm going to stop and do a little turnaround. And then Giannis rim running, like once you have all this mo- motion going on and you have the paint wide open, Giannis might be the best lob finisher in the league right now. Like if he's if he's not, he's absolutely top tier 99th percentile in that specific skill. You just said something that kind of made it click for me, which is Giannis, he's kind of like the head of the snake in transition and early offense. And that's organic for them because that plays to his strengths while allowing the other guys to organize on the court as Giannis applies pressure. As that gets choked off a little bit and as the shot clock changes, maybe that moves to Drew Holiday playing more of a traditional point guard. Drew Holiday, of course, is a really nice passer, and then he can kind of use that strength and power if he has a mismatch to get into the teeth of the defense or back someone down. He's just so good at that power post-up game for a guard. And then as you move later into the shot clock, having the ball near or in Chris Middleton's hands allows him to quickly flow two-man game into a post-up or some kind of isolation at the end of the clock. And he's you know a fantastic bad shot maker. He's one of, one of your best bad shot makers in the league, maybe. He's really skilled at that. And if you kind of think about the Bucks offense organically working like that, flowing from early offense with Giannis on the ball to Drew in maybe the primary set in an organized half-court set on the ball to Chris Middleton as a release valve at the end of the possession on the ball, then you get this thing that can become kind of greater than the sum of its parts versus like we have to pick which one of the three stars or we have to pitch, pick which way to play. We have to play Helio Giannis or something, which as we've seen can have serious limitations in the playoffs because teams kind of learn how to build the wall. They could get comfortable with the timing off the corners. Um, another thing is they sit on that spin move. They know when to sit on his spin move when he comes in the lane. So I really like this version we're describing now. And and just to put some numbers on this, Drew Holiday, as of as of today or yesterday, whenever whenever this is updated, um, the Bucks offensive rating with him on the court this season is one hundred and twenty. Point five. So we are in elite territory, and we always talk about looking at it with the kind of big three indicators on the floor. Um, yeah, it's it's been really good. Let me let me add a little bit more uh, Drew Holiday numbers there. And I know Zach Lowe and Marcus Johnson were just talking about this on the low post. Shout out Marcus Johnson, like Bucks Marcus legend. Johnson is great. Marcus Johnson is a great po- play caller. He's a great podcaster. He's a great player. We we all need to respect Marcus Johnson more. He's He's fantastic. Can we um, have a breakout Marcus Johnson 
like love fest at the end of this show he was i always thought he was one of the most underrated players of his era because one it was short and then two he went to the clippers and got injured and it ended very kind of abruptly and so people don't realize how not just how good he was but that he would go toe-to-toe with guys like julius irving um, at sort of the beginning of the 80s, end of the 70s, those old Bucks teams with Bob Lanier. Anyway, Cody's, Cody's about to start talking about John McLaughlin and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, so we should, <laughs> we should get back on track. Okay, so, so Drew Holiday. Uh, anyway, what I was saying about the low post is Zach Lowe. I, I think this is a direct response to me. So, Zach, thank you so much for responding. This is actually my response to you. And he was like, people get really excited when you just look at the all three of the big three are on the court numbers, which I think I cited like the last episode. Let me, let me go a step further, right? So when the big three, when Giannis, Holiday, and Middleton are all on the court, the relative offensive rating is like plus 11, which I think puts you right around like 122 offensive rating. You take Giannis out of that equation, their offense actually improves a shade. It improves a shade. It's still hovering around that 122. You take hold Middleton. On, hold on, hold on. That's with, that's with Giannis on the bench and Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday on the court. Yes. Exactly. Do you know how many minutes that is for? Not off the top of my head. I don't know why I didn't include that with the data, but it's not okay. insignificant. Like there's a, it's a pretty solid sample size. Okay, you keep uh, going. I, I will see if we can get someone to fetch that while you're talking. Yeah, you, you pull that up. You pull that up. Um, if, you have Giannis, if you have Giannis and Holiday on the court together with Middleton off, their offense is still better yet, right? It's like plus 11.47. So we have like 122, no matter what combination of Holiday and the other one of the big three you have. And then even if Giannis and Middleton are off the court together, uh, their their offense is like just about plus one, right? Like it's not great, but it's still not sinking. Like Holiday is still able to keep them above water a little bit. And here's what Holiday is averaging in those minutes without the other two. He's averaging per 75, 31 and a half points with a true shooting that's plus four percentage points better than league average and nine and a half points of um, nine and a half assists per 75. All right, so Drew Holiday, like I've talked about this a lot. Uh, shiftability, Drew Holiday is tremendous at shifting role, right? Like, he can slot in next to these other stars. He's great next to Middleton and Giannis. But when you start taking away those other offensive options, he becomes more of the focal point. He's able to ramp up his scoring and and passing and efficiency enough that he can still buoy a solid offense. So I think that Drew Holiday offensively right now has been the true key of their success this season. Hmm. By the way, it's 421 minutes, that that sample with... Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton without Giannis and the Bucks are plus eight per 100 in that sample, which is, which is pretty impressive. And back to Drew, I agree. I, I think he's someone who I was lower on offensively in the past. And of course, uh, for a lot of the playoffs last season, really struggled with shot making and just overall, overall kind of offensive grooving um, as, as they ground through that postseason championship run ultimately but if you look at his time in Milwaukee both last season and this season he as we've said has shot the ball much better his overall indicators his uh, scoring efficiency everything's kind of been up and then this season he's been a little bit better than last season like I mentioned three-point shooting numbers Um, Cody alluded to it earlier he's been really good in the mid-range short mid-range we talked about all his strengths we talked about him as a passer uh yeah, 20 points per 75, plus 3% relative true shooting compared to the league. His one-number metrics look good. I mean, I think you are talking – I think if I had to pick a team today for the playoffs, I think the Bucks would have three of my top 20 picks. 
Wait, what, what do you mean by three of your top 20 picks? What do you mean by that? If I had a draft board for picking a team for the postseason, I think they have three of the top 20 players on that draft board. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So you, you like Drew and Chris that much along the I've been a big I've been a big Chris fan for a long time. I think he's often been closer to a, you know, fringe top 10 player, depending on who's healthy and who's in the league, than some people. Like, it always confuses me when people are like, yeah, Chris Middleton's not, a, not an all-star. He's not one of the 30 best players in the league. Um, I'm not going to call out any of the players who made the all-star team over them because it's just not going to do anybody any good at this point. But I, there's plenty of guys I would I would take him I would take him over plenty of the guys who have made an all-star team this season yeah Yeah, absolutely and it feels like the thing is is like when we're talking about their offense meshing together it almost feels like an unselfishness of those three like we don't we don't hear any chirping about needing a bigger role or wanting to score more points because clearly Drew can do it you you've tweeted out multiple times evidence of Chris being able to ramp up his his scoring and creation when he doesn't have superstars but they don't care like they they seem to be just fine like as long as their their offense is going well now like I said Giannis still has those those bumps and bruises of trying to take those pull-up threes and pull-up mid-ranges which I, I think that's the main thing holding back his offense right now is is instead of dishing it off to one of the other two guys to create, he kind of takes it into his hands sometimes. I I really don't love that, but uh, I have a I have a historical comparison for Drew right ooh, now. Ooh, okay, go for it. I'm gonna throw this out there. This might be extremely blasphemous. You might you might need to pull me back here, but this is based solely on what I'm seeing. Drew Holiday's offensive game right now reminds me a little bit of Oscar Robertson. Okay, that mid range maestro. The like slow paced establishing yourself. Both of them are just these strong guards that can take other guards into the post and can't can aren't like getting mismatched in the post at all. And when I was watching them, I'm like, yeah, this is how I imagine Oscar Robertson would be playing if he was in the league right now. Have you not had enough sunlight lately? <laughs> On the contrary, it's, what's it's the weather like? like it's in, been like the sunniest. Minnesota. It's been the sunniest. I've got some color on my face. I got some energy again. Drew Holiday reminds me of an, of a Oscar Robertson's game. I'm gonna I'm gonna let that one stand. I mean, I like I, if you're t- you're talking about a much lighter, less effective version because he can't pass. He can't yeah, pass yeah. like Oscar Robertson. I'm not he can't saying shoot. Drew, yeah, I'm not saying Drew Holiday is as effective as Oscar Robertson, but that play style, the way that he is, got it, playing on the court, the way that he's making himself more efficient, reminds me of Oscar's game. I okay. Okay. I mean, Oscar liked to operate a lot in the kind of middle of the floor. He used his body, his hips, his rump extremely well. Has anyone said rump in the year 2022? I believe I'm the first one. To... Oh, man. <laughs> this, we're, this is being recorded, Ben. Um, yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying. Both using a lot of power, doing a lot of work in that kind of inside 15 feet, which, of course, isn't super common today. I'll I'll let it. You know the Bucks. We're feeling good. The Bucks are doing well. I think we should give Cody this one. Okay, thank yeah. you. I appreciate this. I this is me like the opposite of being vindicated. Whatever it is, I was very critical of Drew last year. Like the playoff run last year, he was like a negative ten efficiency. I was really critical right. of the trade at first. I said a lot of mean things about him in the playoffs. I've done a complete one eighty. Like Drew Holiday. I, tell me if you're wrong. Do you think this is Drew Holiday's best season? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know how sustainable the offense is. But I think it's definitely been his best regular season. And I think if his offensive game, this is kind of close to a stabilizing point for his offensive game. It doesn't regress back down too much. And his defense is still there. I think this is not only absolutely the best version of Drew Holiday, but like I said, I mean, that's 
That's definitely a top 20 player, I think. He, he's, he's, if you haven't been paying attention, he's just really been fantastic this year. Yeah, exactly. Like, so go, go watch a Bucks game. You will be, you'll be shocked at how efficiently Drew ends up just using his strength in the post, setting up guys with, with not, not traditional drive and kick game because he's not going to be super quick. Like, there's even, I think it was against the Jazz. There's a play where like <laughs> he drives. I don't know against, is it against Clarkson? Maybe. Anyway, he draws a foul, but it's not because of his speed. It's not because of a quick first step. He just really gets into him. And it's almost one of those where I'm sitting there watching, and I'm like, dude, just flop a little bit. Like, sell the contact to get to the line. But he's just not. He's just a bear driving into the post being at 6'4", or whatever he is. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. We're going to set up a poll. I think on Spotify, you can set up a poll and, and we'll let people know. I mean, people will let us know if you're... Oscar Robertson comparison is okay. We'll, we'll set up a poll and get um, feedback on that. Is there anything else we have to talk about? You wanted to ask me a question. I did. You wanted to ask me a question after the last LeBron James video. Is that right? Yeah, 100%. So you want to talk about transition, guys. It, it blows my mind that LeBron is still second in transition possessions um, of players that have played 40 games. Like at 37, that, that doesn't even make sense. Well, I, I think he's the greatest transition. I mean, a Magic would be the only other kind of contender, I think, but... I think he's the best transition scorer ever, and I think he's probably the best transition player ever. Yeah, I think I, I think I agree with that. I think I used to think a 1A, 1B with Magic, but uh, I think LeBron's scoring puts him up a level. Uh, but I, I was thinking about his game, and just like this year, thinking back to his prime being such a, a focal point of an offense. Like he's, he's one of those heliocentric kind of guys where it's like you almost don't want the ball in other people's hands because he's just so good with the ball. And I was thinking... Like, what kinds of players do you actually want to pair up with LeBron? Like, if you were trying to build the ideal teammate for LeBron James, I mean, usually you want multiple ball handlers, but do you want multiple ball handlers when you have LeBron out there? So if you were to have an ideal teammate for LeBron James, you can think this season historically, either what kind of archetype would you go with or what what player comes to mind for that? The archetype is... uh... A pick and roll, pick and pop partner who could also space the floor and then provide insane defensive value on the other end. It's one of the reasons why I think Anthony Davis was probably the best fitting teammate of his entire career. And then I think if I'm following the logic and I'm consistent, that means I think your best teammate would be, I get to pick from anyone in history? Anyone in history. Yeah, probably someone like Kevin Garnett then. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. I feel like Kevin Garnett would be the answer for, for a lot of players. <laughs> well, that's Honestly. why he's Kevin Garnett. That's yeah. true. I, I got another player for you. I don't know if this player is too good, but I'm thinking of like offensive synergy where if you had these two on the court at the same time, it just it just wouldn't be fair. How would you feel about like uh, Steph Curry versus Kevin Garnett? Well, I don't think I, I think you'd have to think about how you construct the defense a little differently on the other end. And then Steph Curry is interesting because the question is, I assume you're asking for this reason. The question is, can you still kind of harness all of his movement off the ball 
where you've got I would, what at least one or two other players kind of screening and moving with him while LeBron has it up top. Um, is LeBron pay- playing pick and roll or is he just by himself at the elbow? Like, uh, by the way, I think one of the one of the tricks, one of one of the traps we fall into when we talk like this is we just like assume we assume a team is running like one or two sets over. There's a lot more diversity than that, but just conceptually, the geometry of the floor, I think I would I would wonder how it would work. Um, I think with Curry, I like another mover. I like other shooters. I would rather have. I love the model with Draymond and Andre Iguodala, by the way, and before that. Andrew Bogut to some degree, uh, and even Zaza Pachulia, and just just these guys who are like your worst offensive players in some classical sense, being the feeders of Curry and the other guys moving, and and it's kind of the Heat can do it as well. Where if you give the ball to Bam, who's your weakest shooter, you can have all these other guys move around and create chaos. I I don't know how that would work with LeBron. I think it would be great, but. I wonder if you you get a better deal having a a great defensive player and a pick and roll partner that kind of enhances the classical LeBron ball. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I I think I buy that, especially like because I am just talking about offensive synergy. And if you unlocked it, that would be incredible. But the defensive synergy between KG and LeBron, like if you had LeBron at the four and KG at the five, like, oh, my God. No, that's that's the one I get more excited about almost. Yeah. Yeah. So that that was that was the main question I had. Do you have anything else? No, I I think have we covered our bases for today? Is there anything else we need to talk about? Do you want to talk about Marcus Johnson? Oh, the Marcus Johnson love fest. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe not a classical top three, top five player at his peak, but like really good score slasher can kind of get into the mid range stuff. Probably a better passer than you would imagine. Getting get like. Cody, who's almost a functional comparison historically, like like Tracy McGrady or something, where you get some scoring and playmaking. I think McGrady was a better pure passer. McGrady was a really good passer, by the way. Uh, but then Marcus was a better defender than you think, that kind of thing. I don't know. He was he was just a really good NBA forward, like a great NBA forward from 1979 to 1982 or 83 or something. I think the guy that comes to mind for me is like Blake Griffin. Like, I feel like they were kind of in the same mold, especially in like the fact that they were bigger. They handled a lot more. I think I could be wrong about this. I heard it for Paul Pressey in, in 80s games I watched, but I think someone tweeted at me some evidence that Marcus Johnson might have been the first player that somebody referred to as a point forward. Mm, yep. I, I, Which I is think... so funny because Paul Pressey is like the one I think of as being a quintessential point forward for the Bucks. Yeah, that's exactly it. So like, he, he's more of the typical like starting the possession. I think they just called it for Marcus Johnson because he was good at like the grab and go. Like he was, he 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 was he had, like would palm the ball out of rebounds. I tweet I tweeted once. I tweeted a highlight of him like boxing out Daryl Dawkins, and he goes up and just like one hand cups it and brings it down. And and he himself actually retweeted. He's like, oh, I had to I had to keep it away from Daryl at times because he was just so physical down there, and this is the only way that I could do it. So I think the grab and go is what what made him uh, the first point forward. Have you seen Winning Time? No, I haven't. Okay. All right. We probably should talk about that. Is he in at it? At some point. No, he's not in it yet. It's it's uh, Sidney Moncrief has come up, and then the Magic Johnson thing, where in the first episode, at least, they... I mean, 
one of the issues with winning time is so much of it seems to be non-factual and yet it's presented as kind of like a historical account of what happened but there is this tension that was real at the time and you can read a little bit, bit about it in past articles of you know whether magic comes with risks and whether there's ever been a player like magic it's kind of what uh kyle mann and i were talking about in the last episode where really at the end of the day, it's some kind of like black swan fallacy. You haven't seen this new type of player. So therefore that you can't see how they would be really, really successful. And you can see all the ways that they fail compared to other players. Therefore they might be more likely to fail. And having a six, eight point guard back then was essentially completely unheard of. And so there was this pressure to take Sidney Moncrief with the number one pick and Moncrief also ended up becoming a very good player. We've talked about him this year on the podcast. Anyway, We'll have to we'll have to dig into winning time yeah, at some point. Definitely. I have some this is speaking of, of completely factual texts. Somebody when I when I was talking about point forwards on Twitter once upon a time, someone tweeted me the etymology of the word from Wikipedia. And it seems like here are the conflicting stories. It looks like Marcus Johnson claims that he invented it in the eighty four playoffs because they were short on point guards after Nate Archibald was sidelined, and when Don Nelson told him to initiate the, the offense, Marcus Johnson was like, all right, so instead of a point guard, I'm a point forward. Um, Del Harris, one of the assistant coaches for the Bucks mm-hmm. at the time, uh, claims that he uh, that he first mentioned it to Don Nelson in reference to Paul Pressey. But then there's the, there's this twist where somebody credits, I think, Tom Naselke, uh, Rockets coach, using it for Rick Barry as a point forward. So those seem to be the three names that come up on Wikipedia, at least. And what is that, 79, like end of the 70s that would be for Rick Barry? 79 or 80 or something? Yeah, they don't give a date for that one. But okay. All right, yeah. so some sometime around then, point forward was invented. That's what we're going with today. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right, if you want to uh, support this podcast and maybe contribute to our continuing to research the etymology of terms like point forward, check out patreon.com slash thinking basketball. It's the best way to directly contribute. And we have all sorts of fun, additional content, articles, additional videos. We have a fun post show from last, the last podcast episode with Kyle Mann, patreon.com slash thinking basketball. For Cody, you know, thanks for listening all the way to the end with us. I hope you enjoyed this one. And of course, wherever you are listening, I hope you're having a great day.